Book Two, Chapter Nine of the History of Henry Esmond Esquire by William Makepeace Thackeray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Nine. I make the campaign of seventeen o four. Mr. Esmond rode up to London then, where, if the dowager had been angry at the abrupt leave of absence he took, she was mightily pleased at his speedy return. He went immediately and paid court to his new general, General Lumley, who received him graciously, having known his father, and also, he was pleased to say, having had the very best accounts of Mr. Esmond from the officer whose aide-de-camp he had been at Vigo. During this winter Mr. Esmond was gazetted to a lieutenancy in Brigadier Webb's regiment of fusiliers. Then, with their colonel in Flanders, but being now attached to the suite of Mr. Lumley, Esmond did not join his own regiment until more than a year afterwards, and after his return from the campaign of Blenheim, which was fought the next year. The campaign began very early, our troops marching out of their quarters, before the winter was almost over and investing the city of Bonn on the Rhine, under the Duke's command. His grace joined the army in deep grief of mind, with crape on his sleeve, and his household in mourning, and the very same packet which brought the commander-in-chief over, brought letters to the forces which preceded him, and one from his dear mistress to Esmond, which interested him not a little. The young Marquis of Blanford, his grace's son, who had been entered in King's College in Cambridge, whether my Lord Viscount had also gone to Trinity with Mr. Tusher as his governor, had been seized with smallpox and was dead at sixteen years of age, and so poor Frank's schemes for his sister's advancement were over, and that innocent childish passion nipped in the birth. Esmond's mistress would have had him return, at least her letters hinted as much, but in the presence of the enemy this was impossible, and our young man took his humble share in the siege, which need not be described here, and had the good luck to escape without a wound of any sort, and to drink his general's health after the surrender. He was in constant military duty this year, and did not think of asking for a leave of absence, as one or two of his less fortunate friends did, who were cast away in that tremendous storm which happened towards the close of November that which of late or pale Britannia passed, as Mr. Addison sang of it, and in which scores of our greatest ships and fifteen thousand of our seamen went down. They said that our Duke was quite heartbroken by the calamity which had befallen his family, but his enemies found that he could subdue them as well as master his grief. Successful, as had been this great general's operations in the past year, they were far enhanced by the splendour of his victory in the ensuing campaign. His Grace the Captain-General went to England after Bonn, and our army fell back into Holland, where, in 1704, His Grace again found the troops, embarking from Harwich, and landing at Meslan, Slees. Thence His Grace came immediately to The Hague, where he received the foreign ministers, general officers, and other people of quality. The greatest honours were paid to his grace everywhere, at The Hague, Utrecht, Ruremont, and Maastricht, the civil authorities coming to meet his coaches, salvos of cannon saluting him, 
canopies of state being erected for him where he stopped, and feasts prepared for the numerous gentlemen following in his suite. His grace reviewed the troops of the states-general between Liège and Maastricht, and afterwards the English forces, under the command of General Churchill near Bois-le-Duc. Every preparation was made for a long march, and the army heard, with no small elation, that it was the commander-in-chief's intention to carry the war out of the Low Countries and to march on the Moselle. Before leaving our camp at Maastricht, we heard that the French under the Marshal Villeroy were also bound towards the Moselle. Towards the end of May, the army reached Coblenz, and next day his grace, and the generals accompanying him, went to visit the elector of Treves, at his castle of Ehrenbreitstein, the horse and dragoons passing the Rhine, whilst the duke was entertained at a grand feast by the elector. All as yet was novelty, festivity, and splendour. A brilliant march of a great and glorious army, through a friendly country, and sure through some of the most beautiful scenes of nature which I ever witnessed. The foot and artillery, following after the horse as quick as possible, crossed the Rhine under Ehrenbreitstein, and so to Castel, over against Mainz, in which city his grace, his generals, and his retinue were received at the landing-place by the elector's coaches, carried to his highness's palace amidst the thunder of cannon, and then once more magnificently entertained. Gidlingen, in Bavaria, was appointed as the general rendezvous of the army, and thither, by different routes, the whole forces of English, Dutch, Danes, and German auxiliaries took their way. The foot and artillery under General Churchill passed the Neckar at Heidelberg, and Esmond had an opportunity of seeing that city and palace once so famous and beautiful, though shattered and battered by the French under Turenne in the late war, where his grandsire had served the beautiful and unfortunate Electress Palatine, the first King Charles's sister. At Middlesheim, the famous Prince of Savoy came to visit our commander, all of us crowding eagerly to get a sight of that brilliant and intrepid warrior, and our troops were drawn up in Batalia before the prince, who was pleased to express his admiration of this noble English army. At length we came in sight of the enemy, between Dillingen and Loingen, the Brents lying between the two armies. The elector, judging that Donauwert would be the point of his grace's attack, sent a strong detachment of his best troops to Count Darkos, who was posted at Schellenberg, near that place, where great entrenchments were thrown up, and thousands of pioneers employed to strengthen the position. On the 2nd of July, his grace stormed the post, with what success on our part need scarce be told. His grace advanced with six thousand foot, English and Dutch, thirty squadrons and three regiments of imperial cuirassiers, the duke crossing the river at the head of the cavalry. Although our troops made the attack with unparalleled courage and fury, rushing up to the very guns of the enemy, and being slaughtered before their works. We were driven back many times, and should not have carried them, but that the imperialists came up under the Prince of Baden, when the enemy could make no head against us. We pursued them into the trenches, making a terrible slaughter there, and into the very Danube, where a great part of his troops, 
following the example of their generals, Count Darkos and the elector himself tried to save themselves by swimming. Our army entered Danawert, which the Bavarians evacuated, and where, t'was said the elector, purposed to have given us a warm reception by burning us in our beds, the cellars of the houses, when we took possession of them, being found stuffed with straw. But though the links were there, the link boys had run away. The townsmen saved their houses, and our general took possession of the enemy's ammunition in the arsenals, his stores and magazines. Five days afterward, a great Te Deum was sung in Prince Louis's army, and a solemn day of thanksgiving held in our own. The Prince of Savoy's compliments coming to his grace, the Captain-General, during the day's religious ceremony, and concluding, as it were, with an Amen. And now, having seen a great military march through a friendly country, the pomps and festivities of more than one German court, the severe struggle of a hotly contested battle, and the triumph of victory, Mr. Esmond beheld another part of military duty. Our troops entering the enemy's territory, and putting all around them to fire and sword, burning farms, wasted fields, shrieking women, slaughtered sons and fathers, and drunken soldiery, cursing and carousing in the midst of tears, terror, and murder. Why does the stately muse of history, that delights in describing the valour of heroes and the grandeur of conquest, leave out these scenes, so brutal, mean, and degrading, that yet form by far the greater part of the drama of war? You gentlemen of England, who live at home at ease, and compliment yourselves in the song of triumph with which our chieftains are bepraised, you pretty maidens that come tumbling down the stairs when the fife and drum call you and huzzah for the British grenadiers, do you take account that these items go up to make the amount of triumph you admire, and form part of the duties of the heroes you fondle? Our chief, whom England and all Europe, saving only the Frenchman, worshipped almost had this of the godlike in him, that he was impassable before victory, before danger, before defeat, before the greatest obstacle or the most trivial ceremony, before a hundred thousand men drawn in battalia, or a peasant slaughtered at the door of his burning hovel, before a carouse of drunken German lords, or a monarch's coat, or a cottage table, where his plans were laid, or an enemy's battery vomiting flame and death and strewing corpses around him. He was always cold, calm, resolute like fate. He performed a treason or a court bow. He told a falsehood as black as sticks, as easily as he paid a compliment or spoke about the weather. He took a mistress and left her. He betrayed his benefactor and supported him, or would have murdered him with the same calmness always, and having no more remorse than Clotho, when she weaves the thread, or Lachesis when she cuts it. In the hour of battle I have heard the Prince of Savoy's officers say, the Prince became obsessed with a sort of warlike fury. His eyes lighted up. He rushed hither and thither, raging. He shrieked curses and encouragement, yelling and harking his bloody war-dogs on, and himself always at the first of the hunt. Our Duke, 
was as calm at the mouth of the cannon as at the door of a drawing-room. Perhaps he could not have been the great man he was, had he had a heart either for love or hatred, or pity or fear, or regret or remorse. He achieved the highest deed of daring or deepest calculation of thought, as he performed the very meanest action of which a man is capable, told a lie or cheated a fond woman, or robbed a poor beggar of a halfpenny, with a like awful serenity and equal capacity of the highest and lowest acts of our nature. His qualities were pretty well known in the army, where there were parties of all politics, and of plenty of shrewdness and wit, but there existed such a perfect confidence in him as the first captain of the world, and such a faith and admiration in his prodigious genius and fortune, that the very men whom he notoriously cheated of their pay, the chiefs whom he used and injured, for he used all men great and small that came near him as instruments alike, and took something of theirs, either some quality or some property. The blood of a soldier it might be, or a jewelled hat, or a hundred thousand crowns from a king, or a portion out of a starving sentinel's three farthings, or, when he was young, a kiss from a woman, and the gold chain off her neck, taking all he could from woman or man, and having, as I have said, this of the godlike in him, that he could see a hero perish, or a sparrow fall, with the same amount of sympathy for either. Not that he had no tears. He could always order up this reserve at the proper moment to battle. He could draw upon tears or smiles alike, and whenever need was for using this cheap coin. He would cringe to a shoe-black, as he would flatter a minister or a monarch, be haughty, be humble, threaten, repent, weep, grasp your hand, or stab you whenever he saw occasion, but yet those of the enemy who knew him best, and had suffered most from him, admired him most of all, and as he rode along the lines to battle, or galloped up in the nick of time to a battalion reeling from the enemy's charge or shot, the fainting men and officers got new courage, as they saw the splendid calm of his face, and felt that his will made them irresistible. After the great victory of Blenheim, the enthusiasm of the army for the Duke, even of his bitterest personal enemies in it, amounted to a sort of rage. Nay, the very officers who cursed him in their hearts were among the most frantic to cheer him. Who could refuse his meed of admiration to such a victory and such a victor? Not he who writes. A man may profess to be ever so much a philosopher. But he who fought on that day must feel a thrill of pride as he recalls it. The French right was posted near to the village of Blenheim on the Danube, where the Marshal Tallard's quarters were. The line extending through it may be a league and a half before Lutzingham and up to a woody hill round the base of which, and acting against the Prince of Savoy, were forty of his squadrons. Here was a village that the Frenchmen had burned, the wood being in fact a better shelter, and easier of guard than any village. Before these two villages and the French lines ran a little stream, not more than two foot broad, through a marsh that was mostly dried up from the heat of the weather, and this stream, was the only separation between the two armies. Ours coming up and ranging themselves in line of battle before the French, at six o'clock in the morning, 
so that our line was quite visible to theirs, and this whole of this great plain was black and swarming with troops for hours before the cannonading began. On one side and the other this cannonading lasted many hours, the French guns being in position in front of their line, and doing severe damage among our horse especially, and on our right wing of imperialists under the Prince of Savoy, who could neither advance his artillery nor his lines, the ground before him being cut up by ditches, morasses, and very difficult of passage for the guns. It was past midday when the attack began on our left, where Lord Cutts commanded, the bravest and most beloved officer in the English army. And now, as if to make his experience in war complete, our young aide-de-camp, having seen two great armies facing each other in line of battle, and had the honour of riding with orders from one end to the other of the line, came in for a not uncommon accompaniment of military glory, and was knocked on the head, along with many hundred of brave fellows, almost at the very commencement of this famous day of Blenheim. A little afternoon, the disposition for attack being completed with much delay and difficulty, and under a severe fire from the enemy's guns, that were better posted and more numerous than ours, a body of English and Hessians, with Major General Wilkes commanding at the extreme left of our line, marched upon Blenheim, advancing with great gallantry, the Major General on foot, with his officers at the head of the column, and marching with his hat off intrepidly in the face of the enemy, who was pouring in a tremendous fire from his guns and musketry, to which our people were instructed not to reply, except with pike and bayonet when they reached the French palisades. To these Wilkes walked intrepidly, and struck the woodwork with his sword before our people charged it. He was shot down at the instant, with his colonel, major, and several officers, and our troops cheering and huzzahing and coming on as they did, with immense resolution and gallantry, were nevertheless stopped by the murderous fire from behind the enemy's defences, and then attacked in flank by a furious charge of French horse which swept out of Blenheim, and cut down our men in great numbers. Three fierce and desperate assaults of our foot were made, and repulsed by the enemy, so that our columns afoot were quite shattered, and fell back scrambling over the little rivulet which we had crossed so resolutely an hour before, and pursued by the French cavalry, slaughtering us and cutting us down. And now the conquerors were met by a furious charge of English horse, under Esmond's general, General Lumley, behind whose squadrons the flying foot found refuge, and formed again, whilst Lumley drove back the French horse, charging up to the village of Blenheim, and the palisades where Wilkes, and many hundreds more gallant Englishmen, lay in slaughtered heaps. Beyond this moment, and of this famous victory, Mr. Esmond knows nothing, for a shot brought down his horse, and our young gentleman on it, who fell crushed and stunned under the animal, and came to his senses, he knows not how long after, only to lose them again from pain and loss of blood. A dim sense, as of people groaning about him, a wild incoherent thought or two, for her who occupied so much of his heart now, and that here his career, and his hopes, and misfortunes were ended. 
he remembers in the course of these hours a dim sense as of people groaning round about him a wild incoherent thought or two for her who occupied so much of his heart now and that here his career and his hopes and misfortunes were ended he remembers in the course of these hours when he woke up it was with a pang of extreme pain his breastplate was taken off his servant was holding his head up the good and faithful lad of hampshire was blubbering over his master whom he found and had thought dead and a surgeon was probing a wound in the shoulder which he must have got at the same moment when his horse was shot and fell over him the battle was over at this end of the field by this time the village was in possession of the english its brave defenders prisoner or fled or drowned many of them in the neighbouring waters of Dunno. but for honest lockwood's faithful search after his master there had no doubt been an end of esmond here and of this his story the marauders were out rifling the bodies as they lay on the field and jack had brained one of these gentry with the club end of his musket who had eased edmund off his hat and periwig his purse and fine silver-mounted pistols which the dowager gave him and was fumbling in his pockets for further treasure when jack lockwood came up and put an end to the scoundrel's triumph note my mistress before i went this campaign sent me john lockwood out of walcott who hath ever since remained with me henry esmond hospitals for our wounded were established at blenheim and here for several weeks esmond lay in very great danger of his life the wound was not very great from which he suffered and the ball extracted by the surgeon on the spot where our young gentleman received it but a fever set in next day as he was lying in hospital and that almost carried him away jack lockwood said he talked in the wildest manner during his delirium that he called himself the marquis of esmond and seizing one of the surgeon's assistants who came to dress his wounds swore that he was madame beatrix and that he would make her a duchess if she would but say yes he was passing the days in these crazy fancies and vanasomnia whilst the army was singing te deum for the victory and those famous festivities were taking place at which our duke now made a prince of the empire was entertained by the king of the romans and his nobility his grace went home by burling and hanover and esmond lost the festivities which took place at those cities and which his general shared in company of the other general officers who travelled with our great captain when he could move it was by the duke of Württemberg city of stuttgart that he made his way homewards revisiting heidelberg again whence he went to mannheim and hence had a tedious but easy water journey down the river of rhine which he had thought a delightful and beautiful voyage indeed but that his heart was longing for home and something far more beautiful and delightful as bright and welcome as the eyes almost off his mistress shone the lights of harwich as the packet came in from holland and it was not many hours ere e esmond was in london of that you may be sure and received with open arms by the old dowager of chelsea who vowed in her jargon of french and english that he had the air noble that his pallor embellished him that he was an amadis and deserved a gloriana and oh flames and darts what was his joy at hearing that his mistress was coming to waiting and was now with her majesty at kensington 
Although Mr. Esmond had told Jack Lockwood to get horses, and they would ride for Winchester that night, when he heard this news he countermanded the horses at once. His business lay no longer in hands. All his hope and desire lay within a couple of miles of him in Kensington Park Wall. Poor Harry had never looked in the glass before so eagerly to see whether he had the bel air, and his paleness really did becoming. He never took such pains about the curl of his periwig and the taste of his embroidery and point lace as now, before Mr. Amadeus presented himself to Madame Gloriana. Was the fire of the French lines half so murderous as the killing glances from her ladyship's eyes? Oh, darts and raptures, how beautiful were they! And as before, the blazing sun of morning, the moon fades away in the sky almost invisible. Esmond thought, with a blush perhaps, of another sweet pale face, sad and faint and fading out of sight, with its sweet fond gaze of affection. Such a last look it seemed to Cass as Eurydice might have given, yearning after her lover, when fate and Pluto summoned her, and she passed away into the shades. End of Book Two, Chapter Nine